the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation tonight. Johnny Moore served as campus pastor and senior vice president of Liberty University for many years. He is now chief of staff to Mark Burnett and Roma Downey and um, has written inside the pages of his new book, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? Newly released, by the way, by Thomas Nelson and available at the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. In the book, we talk about this entire issue of how to demystify God's will. And toward that end, and this kind of harkens back to what you mentioned just prior to to the break, Johnny, the sense that we kind of look for an understanding of God's will for our life as an event, but is it really more of a process? Absolutely. I I think this is where we get so wrong with this question. We're we're expecting God to to drop a blinking light from the sky and tell us what to do and where to go, And, and that's not what the Bible teaches is the normal course of things when it comes to the will of God. God's will is more about who you are than where you are or, or what you're doing. And, and by the way, we think that, you know, expecting these miracles and these supernatural things to get us going is like a very holy and righteous thing to do. You know, but when you when you read the Bible, I mean, you, you see some pretty interesting things. I mean, like, Jesus said that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. That, that's what he said. You know, and, and we think it's like really, really... A holy and righteous and very spiritual thing to do to pray and pray and pray for God to show us where to go and what to do. But see, if God just showed us where to go and what to do all the time, it wouldn't require that we live by faith. So He doesn't do that. He stays quiet and He forces us to jump out of the nest that He's made for us. And He's always there waiting to swoop us if we need help, but He's never going to let us sit there until everything is guaranteed how much of this is passion driven uh, following one's passion something that uh, i'm sure you talked about with um, campus students there at liberty university for for many years is that an important key component i mean it just seems to me that no matter where you wind up and whether or not we're talking about a a religious calling or a secular calling if you don't have passion for what you do you're really not going to be very effective at it and and i think certainly a lot of folks can easily ascertain if they if they don't understand what god's will is for them precisely so they can certainly sit down and articulate, maybe even on an eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper, what they're passionate about, can't they? Yes, and God puts that in our hearts. I, you know, I believe God made us with these things in our hearts, and and I don't think that it is, you know, biblical to think that you have to sacrifice all of these desires in order to, to be in the center of the will of God. I think it's actually quite the opposite. I think very often. God allows us to couple our passion with our experience to do great things in the world. And so sometimes it's not running from it, it's running towards it. Mm. But if you're running towards it, 
What if there's a, a fork in the road? What, what, what if there's a couple of uh, multiple paths that seem right or multiple arenas where you, you have uh, a multiplicity of passions? Then what? Then you pick one. You just pick one. You know, I, I think a lot of times that we, we believe that if you do one path, you're right, and one path, you're wrong. And, and by the way, I'm not talking about the moral will of God. You know, I, I'm not talking about things that the Bible clearly says are right and things the Bible clearly says are wrong. Now, that, that's a different conversation. Of course, God doesn't want you to do the things that He says are wrong in, in His Word. But when it comes to these big life decisions, I think oftentimes... God gives us the freedom to choose. And so while we, while we beg and plead for God to show us which fork to take in the road, you know, God's standing on the sidelines sometimes saying, you know, just make a decision. But, but by the way, this is why the first principle about God's will is so important, that God's will is more about who you are than where you are or what you're doing, because you, you've got to work on who first. You work on who you are as a person to make sure you're, you know, your heart's where it needs to be, that you're prepared, that you're someone that whatever path you're going on, you're going you're gonna to take a good path because you're going to be a good and God-honoring person. But I think we get mixed up sometimes, and we, we start thinking of these sort of decisional will of God and the way we think of the moral will of God. And God gave us freedom, not as a curse, but as a gift. We look, for example, and you talk about this in the book, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life?, about Gideon and the fleece. And, and I certainly in my years as a believer, I've heard a lot of young believers who are struggling with this very topic that will ponder the idea of, well, maybe I need to lay a fleece before the Lord. Now, whether or not they actually go out and do that on the front lawn and wait to see if it's got dew on it the next morning, I don't know. But there is, I think, that some sense that they're looking for some way, some sort of, of, of external sign that this is exactly where God wants them to be. But at the end of the day, isn't this more about what's going on inside of your own heart and having that that sense of this is right, uh, that that check in your spirit? Well, listen. I mean, we've all done this, right? I mean, I, I have. I, you know, I prayed. I prayed that prayer. You know, I prayed for the fleece, and you know, God, I laid out my fleece here, and I'm standing, and I'm waiting for you to do your thing. But you know, when we go back and actually read the story, you know, one of the first things you discover is God ain't too happy about Gideon's fleece. <laughs> because God's a God of grace. He tolerated Gideon's fleece laying. But, but you know, that's, that's not, it didn't make him very happy. And, and I think the same thing same thing's true in our lives. I mean, God's patient with us. He, he, he knew what he was getting himself, in, himself into when he, he invited us into his family. But he expects more of us. He expects us not to have to lay out the fleece to trust him. He expects us to walk by faith to go in the logical direction and expect God to be with us every step of the way. That you know, faith is, is such a key component. You discuss it at length in the book. You also touch on another topic that I think is critically germane to this discussion, which we're going to pick up on right after the break, and that is not only the importance of, of following God by faith, but also having that sense of dedication, uh, the commitment, what we want to call it, uh, stick to that we can be consistent in what it is that we are doing and what it is that God has called us to do. And oftentimes, I think people struggle with trying to answer the question of what am I supposed to do with my life? Because even as maybe God has opened up doors and shown us the way, we've failed to recognize it because we've simply not been willing to pay the price. We've not been willing to make the commitment. 
We'll talk about that as our discussion with Johnny Moore continues. The book, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? God's Will Demystified, newly published by Thomas Nelson. A timeout back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting today with Johnny Moore. Johnny, by the way, is chief of staff to Mark Burnett and Roma Downey. Of course, you know Mark's work. You're familiar with uh, all the big hits, Survivor, Amazing Race, the Bible miniseries, the movie Son of God. Lots of great, amazing stuff that no doubt that you have enjoyed. Well, Johnny's written a new book called What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? God's Will Demystified, which, by the way, you can pick up at Amazon.com or through, you know, local bookstores and so on and so forth. Uh, John, let's talk about a couple of key principles. You spend a lot of time in the book talking about the issue of commitment. Tell me why. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. When I decided to write a book on God's will, I I expected to write a whole book on God's will, because this is a really, really big and important question. But as I really dug into the question, what does the Bible actually say about God's will, I and I was surprised to discover it says a whole lot less than we make of it. And actually, it's not that hard of a question. It's a pretty simple question to answer. You know, God's will is more about who you are than where you are and what you're doing. And it's more about going until God stops. You stop waiting for him to tell you to go. But actually, what I was struck by was that most of us, if we knew what God's will was in the first place, we would be committed to it. But Because we have major, major commitment issues in this world that we're living in now. And so... So I ended up devoting the whole second half of my book on God's will to commitment, you know, why we struggle with commitment, how we need to be commitment, how commitment is actually the answer to the question, what is God's will? It's not about who you, it's not about where you are, what you're doing, it's about, you know, whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing, being committed to it. And, you know, I, we, we referenced Paul earlier. Imagine how different his story might have turned out had after one or two rough spots along the road, which I think he would admit were legion <laughs> during his his time of ministry, if he just said, "Oh, this is too much work," and I, I don't, you know, I, I used to be on the persecuting side. I'm not. I'm not really up for this being persecuted business. So I'm just. I'm out of here. God, you can go find somebody else. Um, that that story of his life and his impact on the early church might have been quite different had he not been committed. You know, this is a a sort of under-recognized value in the society that we're living in today. And and actually, it's at the very, very heart of Christianity. I mean, this, this, this attitude of being committed to Jesus Christ, whatever the circumstances, was the hallmark of Christianity. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, subsidiary issue, a tertiary issue. It wasn't something that some Christians had as a distinct characteristic of their lives. I mean, Christianity grew up where it was either you'd be committed or you're not a Christian at all. And it costs you something. And, and by the way, it doesn't cost a lot in the United States of America today, but, but in lots of countries in the world, it still costs a lot. You know, if you go to Iraq or Syria and you, you walk around and meet the Christian communities there that are under tremendous persecution, perhaps even eradication if something doesn't happen, their faith isn't something that they just do because they believe it. You know, they, they do it because it's so down deep inside of who they are. They, they just can't imagine not doing it. And, yeah, and, and that's where I think, you know, our, our, our obsession with the question of God's will is sometimes a pretty selfish question. It's all about us, and it's never actually going to be what we're hoping we're going to get when we answer the question until we make it all about 
Jesus. And when we make it all about Jesus, it's going to require commitment. Well, it takes us back to you. It's a spiritual thing. And it takes us, I think, Johnny, back to your point earlier, and that is this is not about what we do. It's about who we are, because there are going to be times where we're going to fail in what we do. I mean, imagine if you sit down with either Roma or Mark, who today many of us recognize as being incredible um, producers and, and, and actresses in the case of Roma. Um, there's got to be a backstory there of all of the failures that either everybody has forgotten or doesn't know anything about. Now, imagine after a failed project or two, if Mark had just said, well, this is not for me, this this can't be my calling because I've had a failure here on my hand, so what's next? Imagine what things might look, look like today if he had, had taken that attitude. Well, and this is the story of human history, right? I mean, sure. all of the people in all of history that have done things of great significance you know, have, have had their ups and downs. They, you, know, you, you don't bat a thousand every time. You know, my, my, one of my favorite quotes I, I've ever read is, is from Winston Churchill, where you know, Churchill said that success in life is often nothing more than moving from one failure to the next with undiminished enthusiasm. <laughs> and, and by the way, this is a very Christian idea. I mean, it was, it was the Bible that says that the righteous fall seven times and they get back up. And you don't individual knew, you know, the, the base talent that is necessary is simply not there. Is there also a time when you need to engage in that self-talk that, that allows you to see things honestly, that there might be somebody who, for example, aspires to be a radio talk show host and feels as if they've got what it takes, but doesn't really recognize, maybe I'm talking about myself here, <laughs> doesn't recognize they don't have the base skills necessary. And so as a result, they could be doomed for failure simply because, quite frankly, they've not had that that matter of self-honesty to say, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Yeah, I, I think the easiest person to deceive is yourself, mm. right? I mean, this this is so true in so many circumstances. And yeah, and and you know, one of the, one of the points I think the Bible teaches is that God's will often just makes sense. And and by the way, when it when it doesn't make sense in the here and now, in hindsight, it almost always makes sense. You know, God's will is more often seen through the rearview mirror than the windshield. When you look backwards, you see it, but when you look forwards, sometimes it's, it's unclear. And so you know, we we have this absolute propensity to, to deceive ourselves. And so, you know, one of the things I think we have to do you know, when we start answering these big questions about life and making these big decisions about our lives is you know, I think we need to have a good, honest self-assessment. We we need to pray the prayer of David, which you know, God search me and show me if there's any wickedness inside of me. And and you know, along the way to find the weakness, weak wickedness, we also also find a lot of weaknesses along the way. And and you know, God God doesn't waste his miracles on on trying to make bad vocalists famous. <laughs> more often than not, he uses his miracles in ways that are that are much, much more significant for his kingdom. There's another important lesson here. Maybe it's a good note to, to end our conversation on. I am reminded in scripture that God will give us the desires of our heart. But God also tells us that we should seek first his kingdom 
and all of his righteousness. And then all these things will be added unto us. And so at the end of the day, um, if our heart is focused on him, if our ultimate desire is to walk in a rich, deep, profound relationship with him, then whatever those other ancillary desires might be, God will indeed fulfill them. But it really comes back to having that focus on not what we're doing, but who we are and in our relationship with him. Doesn't it, Johnny? It's exactly right. And and if you focus on that, it's amazing how your desires are suddenly what his desires are for you. And these questions get a little bit simpler. You you end up kind of being in the heart of God's will by accident. And, and because God's will is, well, it, it sort of takes care of itself. If you're taking care of your relationship with the God whose will you want to follow. Some solid advice from Johnny Moore, the book called What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? God's Will Demystified, again published by Thomas Nelson, available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc., etc. Johnny has a website, too. You can check him out, Johnny, J-O-H-N-N-I-E, Moore, with two O's, Moore with an E, dot O-R-G. Johnny, thanks so much for the time. Always a pleasure. Take care now. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Hey, ask yourself the question, do you love your kids? Certainly. I think every parent says, I love my kids. They can be a little bit problematic sometimes. There are days when, you know, if we could turn back the clock, we might have thought (laughs) differently. But overall, sure, we love our kids. But how do we love our kids? And does it, in the end, make a difference? There's so much to parenting these days and unfortunately it's the one really big important job in life where a lot like marriage you don't get a handbook there's no manual there's no advanced pre-qualifications you just kind of dive in and you go and if you came fortunately from a good strong family and uh, your parents did a pretty good job raising you you can kind of model your parenting skills after them and if you didn't well you think about what mom and dad did and then do the opposite right but in the end some of the keys uh, to parenting can come down to not just that we love our children, but how we love our kids. That, coincidentally, is the title of a new book released by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Mylan and Kay Yurkovich. And uh, welcome, both of you, to the program. Hi, Craig. How are you? I'm well, Hi. thanks. Great to be with you. I, I think of the, the five languages of love, and now you have brought out the five love styles. And let, let's spend a moment... When we talk about this, I think, you know, at basic level, people think, well, of course I love my kids. And and sometimes I've learned from people like James Dobson, I have to employ tough love. But what are these five different styles of loving? Well, essentially, um, you end up seeing different people like the avoider parent who, male or female, is the emotionally detached parent. Uh, You have the pleaser who's the rescuing parent who wants everybody to be happy. You have what we call the vacillator parent who's dedicated but highly preoccupied and sometimes present, sometimes not, also a person who gets angry. A controller, the autocratic parent, and then the victim, the childlike parent. And all those styles, of course, there are good aspects, 
There are negative aspects. There are benefits. There, are, I, mean, I, I suppose it's like anything, you know, the, the, the negatives weigh in with the positives. As we look at these different styles of parenting, give me some insight in terms of where do they come from? Is this something that, that's learned behavior? Do we model it after the way our parents loved us? What? Yes, we, we really do get our first lessons about love from our own families growing up, but we don't often stop to really ask ourselves, what exactly were those lessons and what was good about them and what, what would I like to change about them? And, you know, we were married 15 years and parented for 15 years without ever really looking back to answer or ask that question. So we, we come out of our homes with an, an imprint of intimacy or beliefs about relational styles and each one of these that Mylan just mentioned um, have some specific issues that often we aren't aware of. Well, let's talk about some of the things that we're not aware of. Okay, and- well, for example, I was the avoider parent. And so I came from a home where um, my parents did a great job raising responsible, self-sufficient kids, that we performed well. Um, but where they, where they were weak, and I don't think they realized this, was they were weak in emotional connection. We were never asked about feelings as as a kid and with my sisters. We were never comforted when we were emotionally distressed. We were sort of left to figure that out on our own. So I adopted those rules and parented my own kids in the same way. And I think most avoider parents, male or female, are, are going to be task-oriented and they're going to applaud mastery and independence. And sometimes I expected my kids to be further along than they were really developmentally ready to be. And you know, when, when my kids were frustrated or, um, you know, upset, I really didn't have the skills to draw out their emotions or ask them what they were feeling because I didn't really know what I was feeling. Now, so, toward that end, I, I'm, I'm curious, Mylan, how did your parenting style uh, work in harmony or, or against? Was there a sense of balance between the two of you? <laughs> well... I like your optimistic start. <laughs> Did they work in harmony? Well, actually, they didn't, because as a pleaser parent, I wanted everybody to be happy. And I was a fear-based parent, which is what uh, pleasers are. And, you know, what happens is is that pleaser parents often, even though they're fun and they create warm, nurturing environments, Sometimes their highest value is safety, protection, and keeping everybody happy, and they, protect, they want to protect kids. And they can overly protect kids and ultimately uh, discourage exploration and so on and so forth. Does so, this also tend to be somebody that perhaps avoids conflict, wants to keep, you know, let's not ruffle the feathers, let's keep absolutely. everybody happy? Absolutely. So there can be some, so, some, some might regard this then, Mylan, as, as a, a lack of discipline at some levels. Well, that's perhaps true. Uh, Pleaser parents are not as respected as other parents, um, often because they're pushovers, and they can, the kids can get by with stuff, and the parent doesn't want to create friction that causes the child to become angry at them, because they're fear-based, and they like to have everybody in a, a happy place. And so they really can't offer um, what you said earlier in your introduction uh, like James Dobson said, they have a hard time with this tough love concept, and people do need a good balance of tough and tender, 
or as it says in John, truth and grace. You know, there's so much work that needs to be done here because it, it occurs to me as we as we in life go about finding that perfect life partner. You know, we, we typically think about compatibility in terms of, you know, where do you like to vacation? And, you know, how do you like to decorate the house? And where do you want to live? And how many kids would you like to, to have? We, we think about manners in which husband and wife will mesh together relationally, but I would suspect there are few that would sit down and advance of making a decision to get married and say, so tell me about your parenting style. You know? Well, that's true. And then if you get two parenting styles that are identical or are, are polar opposites, and as you've suggested by the title of the book and in five different styles of parenting, uh, it would almost seem as if if somebody uniquely, and I would suspect it might be a combination where some people are, have you know high tendencies toward one and a lower tendency toward another so that there's a number represented. But what happens, for example, Kay, when there's only two represented, the other three are missing? Does that really create havoc? Well, you know, these styles are a little different from the five love languages that you mentioned earlier because that's just a you know positive way that your spouse would like to sh- be shown love. These are more injuries. In other words, when each one of these styles represents some sort of inability to create emotional connection and to really create that balance Mylon was talking about between love and nurturing and discipline and boundaries. And so as the avoider, I was overly rigid and not able to emotionally connect, and Mylon was too free-spirited and, you know, unable to set those boundaries. But, um, you know, the vacillator parent is the third one, and, you know, their um, ideal is to have a family that is just stands out and is superior. And what the vacillator doesn't really realize is that they are very, very sensitive to rejection, and oftentimes they're very preoccupied with how all their relationships are going, whether that's their marriage or their friendships. And it, it takes a lot of headspace for them. And so many times when they're present with their child, they're really not all there. And so what the child feels with the vacillator is, I'm here, you're present with me, and then all of a sudden you go away, and I, even though you're present in the room, I, you're not here. Mm. And so the child feels a sense of... Um, present, but the, but the exactly, parent is disengaged. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So all these, uh, uh, Craig, are in contrast to a secure attachment style you mentioned in your intro that some of us came from really good homes where we were known, seen, valued, and cared for. And we would describe that person as a person who had a secure parenting experience as a child. And they, they grow up and they naturally know how to create security in relationships. These others are what we call the insecure attachment styles. And so many books are about how to fix the kid. This is a book about how to work on us as parents, how one small change in you can make a big change in your kids. And that's so key because, again, given to the notion, as Kay mentioned, that we typically will model after the parenting style of our parents, good or bad, uh, if that's all we have to go upon, uh, my goodness, that, that can be very problematic, especially, as you suggest, if the vast majority of us did not come from homes where mom and dad were perfect, then what do you do? And oftentimes, as you point out, we look at it as trying to fix things with the kids when oftentimes what's going on with the kids is a direct result from the parenting style. A look at how how we love our kids, the five love styles of parenting, and how one small change in you 
can result in one big change in your kids. Mylon and Kay Yurkovich with us tonight. We'll be back with more insights as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How we love our kids, the five love styles of parenting. And, and Richard reminds me, aren't you going to let listeners know, by the way, that Mylon is one of the co-hosts on New Life Live? And I thought, yeah, you know, that's that that's that over 40 thing again that I, I keep reading about. <laughs> Indeed, of course, the program with our good friend Steve Otterburn, weekday afternoons at 1 p.m. right here on KFAX. And and, and a million apologies, uh, Mylon, if I may. <laughs> No, not necessary at all. Hey, as we're talking about these styles here, I I like what you said just prior to the break, the notion that so often we approach this from the standpoint of trying to fix our kids, when if at first we would focus on, well, dare I dare say it, fix our parenting styles, there might be the real key. Give us some insights from both of your perspectives, if you would, uh, as we kind of sit down and look at the list. We have to analyze, of course, uh, mom's parenting style, dad's parenting style, and then where do we go from there? Well, I think when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in um, uh, the Gospels, uh, uh, he said to them, you know, the pupil cannot rise above the teacher, but when fully trained will be just like the teacher. Mm. And he was saying to that to them uh, after he called them blind guides. And he said, you know, the people of Israel can't see me because you can't see me. And he said, they're not going to get any higher or more elevated in their capacities than you. And I think it's a good passage to help us understand that how we're trained is about as far as we're going to go until we choose to get further training. So, again, as a pleaser, I was a fear-based parent. The vacillators are very shame-based parents, and they also fluctuate between being overly and often rescuing and intrusive with their child to distant and angry, and so they, they vacillate back and forth. And the avoiders tend to be very much about task and mastery. And this can also, Craig, create a, a triangulation in the marriage where uh, the rescuing parent is, is more empathetic and has more, shall we say, um, uh, empath, em, empathy for the child. And then the avoider is less em, you know, empathic, and then the parents are arguing about what should happen to the child without stopping and asking, are you balanced and am I balanced <laughs> you know, in our assessments? And maybe, as you said earlier, we need to ask and balance each other out a little bit more. This really needs to be a team effort. In other words, this is not dad picking on mom or vice versa. Well, it sure happens a lot. Yeah, it does happen a lot. And I, I think an important question, we ask a great diagnostic question in our first book, which looks at these love styles in marriage. You know, do you have a memory of comfort from your own childhood where a parent saw that you were distressed and they noticed that you were emotionally upset about something and they sought you out and really listened to you and drew out your heart and, you know, offered comfort so you left that experience feeling relief. And surprisingly, about 80% of our audiences don't have one memory like that. So comfort is a big part of emotional connection, and avoiders don't know how to do it, and pleasers are afraid of negative feelings. They avoid them. You know, vacillators are so preoccupied that they often aren't able to give their kids comfort because they're trying to comfort themselves. And And, and their world is either good or bad. It's just all good or all bad. And then that last style that we haven't even talked about yet, you know, the people that come from really difficult homes that end up being controllers or victims, um, you know, they they just don't have any memories. In fact, the thing, they didn't get comfort. They actually got 
their parents were stress makers instead of stress reducers. Um, so this whole idea of learning to emotionally connect and, and comfort each other um, was really transforming for us in our marriage, and it really helped us um, learn how to emotionally connect to our kids as well. And a lot of this, Kay, does it come down to learning how to bring about a balance of the good things from all five love styles? Is that what the goal is here in the end? I think the goal is to really look at your love style as an injury. In other words, as an avoider, I didn't get emotional connection in my family, and I was very unable to do it with my own kids. When I realized that, I had to take responsibility for that lack of training in my own home, and I had to learn to know what my feelings were. I had to learn to be able to articulate them, and the more comfortable I got in expressing emotions and accepting comfort for myself, the more I was able to do it for my children. So each of these styles sort of is representative of an injury from your own family, and taking responsibility to really understand that and how it hampers your parenting and and growing towards a more um, secure um, style where you really have the capacity to uh, connect and to relate um, on an emotional level and to listen well. Um, You know, so often we see our kids' behavior and we just react to the behavior without ever saying, why is this child behaving this way? What stresses them? We don't ask enough questions to even sometimes understand that. And, you know, this is such an important key because, Mylon, you touched on this earlier. I mean, certainly from an empowerment standpoint, and this is true in any relationship, the one that we have control over ultimately is ourselves. If we start working on ourselves, understanding our parenting style, seeing the benefits, uh, the disadvantages, and, and beginning to work on that, that certainly is the one key that we can control. But I suppose, too, there's also the dynamic here, as much as there is the parenting style, then there's just the kid's style, so to speak, the kid's personality. In the book, you talk about the free-spirited, the determined, the sensitive, the introverted, the premature. Then I guess there's sort of the meshing of your parenting style with the child's, uh, how would we say it, Mylon, parenting needs? Well, I think parenting needs is a very good term. I wished we would have used that in the book. <laughs> so, uh, yes, you're right. It's um, Every child's unique, and a lot of people, especially in evangelical Christianity, want to create cookie-cutter formulas for how to raise a kid. And some kids are what we call a highly sensitive child, and, and they they are perhaps sensitive to touch and light and sounds and and they're fussier, and and yet if they're put into the same plan as as a child who's not that way, they, they really cave under the pressure, and their life is not a happy one. Uh, I think we can have the same standards but different approaches to each child. Needs to be a lot of flexibility then, because your parenting style may not match their parenting needs, and every child within the family, three, four, five kids, whatever, may all indeed, as unique individuals, have different needs. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's so true, and... You know, I think anybody who's had more than one child realizes the the truth of that. But in the same respect, we all do need to be really understood and loved and known. And, you know, we ask a question in our seminars. How many of you felt you had parents who deeply knew you, um, knew what made you tick, knew what your likes and dislikes were, um, knew what your struggles and stresses were? And again, there's a there's a just a minority of people who raise their hands and so every child really needs to be deeply known and valued and loved and 
um, to the degree that we receive that as kids, you know, then we know how to do it. But if we didn't have parents who deeply knew us and we're, we're going to be lacking those skills. So this is really a, a Even book. awareness. And awareness, that's right. Um, I mean, I parented for 15 years with no awareness that I was really parenting as an avoider. And my last, our fourth child, um, got the best of us. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can see her ability to emotionally connect and be able to articulate feelings and um, listen well uh, is just, at a higher level. And I would suspect, too, here in the end, it, you know, it takes time, it takes an investment, because you're getting to not only know the parenting style of your spouse, but also the unique individual needs of your kids, and obviously that number and time increases exponentially based on the size of your family. Uh, but that said, I would imagine, Mylon, we shouldn't feel overwhelmed by this task. I think we need to feel like I can start any time get better. Um, There's uh, a a very prominent physician some years ago who said, you know, if we provide good enough parenting, um, it it will be adequate. Uh, We're not trying to be the super parent, and we're not trying to be the worst one on the block either. We're trying to get better and improve. And this thing called sanctification that the Bible talks about, that we should be growing over the course of a lifetime, we ask many people in our audiences, how many have you ever felt as though your parents were growing over the course of your childhood and adolescence. And again, very few hands go up. You know, I, I never saw growth. So it's a gradual thing, isn't it? You know, the concept of growth in the Bible, it's like seasons and time and fruit and fruit bearing. It's, it's, a, it's a function of time and growth. The book, again, is entitled How We Love Our Kids, The Five Love Styles of Parenting, One Small Change in You, One Big Change in Your Kids. The new book, by the way, published by Waterbrook, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Also, more information on both the ministry of Mylon and Kay and information on the book on their website, howwelove.com. That's howwelove.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.